Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. Point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, tell, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So, welcome to another episode of the Athens Jerusalem podcast. Uh, this time we're going to discuss if uh, religious study have something to do with well-being. Who, who wants to start? <laughs> Well, I'll start because I ran across in my in my Facebook feed this fantastic quotation by Jean-Paul Sartre uh, about uh, about the the human condition or what he takes to be the human condition, which I think is a great starting point because it contrasts with another way of thinking about uh, about meaning and well-being, um, and neither neither of which I think are viable options today. So we need to look for a third path forward. But Sartre's idea from this quotation, I'll just read parts of it. But he says that uh, that man is alone, left alone on earth in the middle of his infinite responsibilities with neither help nor succor, with no other goal but the one he will set for himself, with no other destiny but the one he will forge on this earth. It is this certainty, this intuitive understanding of his situation that we call despair. You can see that it is no fine romantic frenzy, but the sharp and lucid consciousness of the human condition. And this statement is, I think, also indicative of the of the modern materialistic position uh, that essentially there is there is no larger purpose in the universe it essentially can be described accurately as atoms in the void acting according to these mathematical principles. And Sartre's position is that when one truly internalizes this, one reaches this point of despair at contemplating our essential aloneness in the universe. And from that, he tries to extract an optimistic philosophy of, of, of our then taking the next step of taking charge of our own destiny, realizing that no one is giving us anything, that we have no rights, that we're not owed anything, and that we have to just make something out of out of out of nothingness, basically. 
Um, and this way of looking at the universe, which starts from despair and loneliness, is um, it seems to me to be a, a part of this great mental health crisis that that the world is is in the midst of a crisis that has been precipitated in part by this this draining of meaning, this draining of traditional religious religious values from the world, and we're left with this landscape of. Uh, smoldering ruins of, of loneliness and despair. And, but the problem is the alternative that we think, you know, the only alternative to this is the alternative of that loneliness that being filled with an active personal God, a God of history, a God who intervenes in history, a being outside space and time who yet somehow knows us and cares about us personally, who answers our prayers and works miracles and so forth, that being the traditional concept that, you know, staves off that loneliness of the universe with this assurance that we're not alone. But that assurance is something which modern modern man also finds, I think, difficult in light of the in light of all the lessons of modernity and 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 the 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 success of the scientific project, that it's it's impossible for for many to to think of uh, of ourselves as being in the in the embrace of of a supernatural being so is there a third alternative is there a way for us to think of of the human condition um that affirms that we are not alone that 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 opposes this idea uh, of the of the of existential despair uh opposes the aloneness assures us that we do have a ground of of well-being and and a ground of um, of belonging in the universe without having to uh, place that sense of belonging um, in the hands of this uh, of a being that most people can no longer can no longer believe in. Um, and that's where I think we find things like these beautiful quotations from Einstein that we were looking at in in our last episode. Um, you know, one of which says the the soul given to each of us is moved by the same living spirit that moves the universe. Or I like to experience a universe as one harmonious whole. Every cell has life. Matter too has life. It is energy solidified. And these sorts of considerations assure us that we are at all times in the presence of the divine, not the divine as a supernatural being interposing in the in the rule of of the of the universe but rather a divine which is part of the interconnectedness of things that 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 our consciousness is a is a fragment of of that divine or a ray of that divine um that that we all dance to this mysterious tune of of that um of that sacredness that lies within all things um, this is a way of thinking about uh, about the divine, which is which is more imminent than transcendent, which is something which arises from within our hearts rather than something which is outside uh, and 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 interposed upon the universe. I wonder so what look, you guys think about this. Yeah. So let's try to explore what kind of well-being these three different, what should we call it, uh, understanding of being, mm-hmm. uh, actually will bring. Fourth, so what would happen if if we if we follow the Jean Paul Sartre uh, understanding of of being and understanding of man? I think that's that because that's one of the yes. 
one of the, I think that's one of the reasons actually why we, we started this podcast and why we believe that the, the, the mm-hmm. that there are uh, problems or uh, challenges in the world if we if we if we try to understand being as something as, as a like a nihilistic position, then okay, so so what kind of well-being, what 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 kind of possibility do human have? I hope I'm not being over over general if 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 I if I claim that the that the notion of well-being that tends to arise from the kind of nihilism that's the starting point for uh, for existentialism is a well-being that tends to be more focused on the self. You know, it's for instance, you know, Nietzsche's idea of the of the Ubermensch of of the you know, okay, there's no, there's no meaning in the world. And so I have to take charge myself and overcome. Uh, and this is a sense of meaning, which is, I think, more focused on the self vis-a-vis more traditional religious conceptions of meaning, in which our personal well-being is not so much a, a function of our achieving personal self-realization, but rather in focusing our attention beyond our own selves to the well-being of others. And that other-centered focus, which is one of the one of the great, I think, moral triumphs of Christianity, as just one example, um, of, of love for neighbor being at the heart of our sense of spirituality, places our focus fundamentally outside of the boundaries of our own self. Um, and I think that that idea of meaning, which is fulfilled in our love for others and in service for others, which is so much a part of uh, of tr- traditional religious conceptions in, in, in Western religion, it can also be that idea in this third way that we're looking for, which is between that sort of between Athens and Jerusalem. I think we can find a similar sense of well-being in our awareness of the deep interconnectedness between all things uh, and interconnectedness which requires us to look beyond the boundaries of our own selves to find the that that current the the that directionality of 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 forces and influences that that maximizes both our well-being and the well-being of everything around us what do you think comrade yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that because uh, I, I like the way that you're um, thinking about this because looking at it from the point of view of the educational system, which we're also interested in, um, and and generally, I think that that we find that there are two sort of non-interconnected approaches. I mean, there are, there are those movements and there are those tendencies even within the educational system which are trying to attend to the individual well-being and these are usually very psychological sort of psychology based and and there's been a lot because because at least all over europe and i think this is quite global we can see that young people are experiencing more and more lack of uh mental well-being um which uh, I mean, what, whatever the, the the deeper cause of it, but it it, it it's manifested in in terms of in ways of lack of mental well-being, and and so 
the response has been to try to somehow uh, provide different ways of therapy or, or trying to uh, get them to feel that, well, there is something for them to succeed in, or, you know, there's usually in terms of material well-being or, or getting a good job or being able to engage in hobbies they like or whatever like that. So that, that is, that is one sort of approach. And, uh, and even, even for adults, you know, there's, there's sort of different, different kinds of gurus of, of human individual well-being, which, which are very individualistic essentially. Mm -hmm. But then there are those movements and there are those discussions, even again, at the, in the educational system, which are talking about things like universal human rights, uh, social justice, uh, equality, and so forth. And, and in, in those discussions are done in terms of sociological and sort of general social uh, structures and relationships, usually without any connection to to the individual and, and and their sort of inner world so so these two aspects that you were just referring to Stephen um, as being complementary I think are usually treated as separate and um, so it, it becomes a bit like my my dear late mom I remember when she started learning to swim as an adult she recognized that you have to move your arms and your legs but what she would do was she would first move her arms and then she would move her legs and then she would sink because obviously the idea is that you have to do them in synchronization with each other. And I think that this is a little bit, uh, the situation we're facing is a bit like when my, my poor mom was trying to learn to swim. And then the question is, how can we bring these two aspects together so it doesn't become either sort of... Um, narcissistic uh, self-therapy or therapy of the individual or sort of a um, social a kind of yeah yeah, yeah. Sort of a thing where I think communism really failed trying to create some sort of ideal social state without it in any way sort of talking to the individual or or or, or uh, yeah showing the individual what what individual changes are needed for that to become a reality i think the when when uh, steven when you when you had this quote from uh, sartre and i thought of how uh, each human today we have have to in a way we have to be author in our own life and we have to bring in meaning into our own life and of course maybe some of us might manage it but then uh, it seems very heavy for a lot of us, and I think one of the one of the problem is that we, okay, for instance, if we, if you say social media, then you could have the possibility to to make like an ideal understanding of what you are, and and you can present yourself in a way you want to, but then you you stop remember uh, that you actually are in a special element. You are. In, you you have to swim in water, and you don't. And we we start to we start to swim on ground on mainland, or we yeah we stop believing we stop thinking that we are part of reality and start to think that we could change reality into whatever we want. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why it's very heavy, very hard to have well-being. And it, mm. even that's that's why in in Norwegian uh, in the Norwegian uh, way of speaking, we talk about life mastering. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why this is very difficult. For, and that's why also we need religious study, not not religious study to 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 tell us how to to be in the world but religious study to understand what world is or maybe not to understand but to to explore or to discuss and and also to religious study to offer us a, a narrative of human existence in which we are not seen primarily as isolated moats you know in competition with each other for for scarce resources but rather that we are in some ways you know, facets of of one jewel you know rays of one sun you know, leaves of one tree that um are there's a, a, a sense in which we are independent from each other and and a sense in which that independence also entails a diversity which which is a beautiful thing and a great strength of the human race but underneath that diversity also a essential interconnectedness which we ignore at our own peril um, because our own well-being is tied to an understanding of that interconnectedness i think we could we could we could well say that that human well-being is is truly unattainable unless and until our unity is firmly established you know if if human unity not just our unity in the sense that we're all members of one species, which at a trivial level is true, but a deeper sense in which our consciousness are interfused with each other. Um, we can't survive on our own. We have to see ourselves, um, particularly as civilization advances, we have to see ourselves more and more from the perspective of, of our interconnectedness. And that entails almost logically, if not mystically, um, the need to care for others, the need to love others, the need to go outside the immediate sphere of our, of our self-interest, and the need to forge bonds of unity across neighbor, neighbors, across religions, across races, across nations. Um, and, and if we want, we can think about this purely in pragmatic terms, that this is for our own well-being that we're doing it. Um, if, if, we want, if, if we want to think about it that way, if that motivates us. But um, but I think that's the the you know the real crying need of the age is to find um, is to find a narrative that emphasizes that that inter interconnectedness and, and that unity and I think that really is a prerequisite to our well being. I would like to in this connection to um, concretely present the life stories of two young um, Swedes who have become world famous. And I think they, they to me, they sort of represent um, some of the central issues that we've been touching here. One of them is uh, the late uh, music world figure, Avicii. You know, the this young man who was, who in every sense was an embodiment of what are, modern Western world considers success because he was good at what he was doing. He was 
successful, he was making good money, and he was even greatly loved by people. He was extremely popular at a young age. So he was he was like what what every educational system would have certainly wanted to say, you know, like he was a he's of our alumni, or you know, this, this is a student that we have produced. And yet, tragically, and, and according to his family, due to existential issues in his life that he could not resolve, he took his own life at the very peak of his success. And and which which sort of makes me think that that our educational system is dangerous when it really succeeds in what it's trying to do. And then we have another another uh, youthful figure that has become maybe even more famous in the world, Greta Thunberg, and she was a she was a young girl who, in her early teens, was actually suffering. And this is something that you know is publicly known because her family talked about it. She was suffering of certain kind of sort of lack of mental balance and, and well-being. But because of the support that she received from her family, and, and again, has nothing to do with the educational system. It's very interesting because, because actually she, she became famous by, by literally walking out of school and the classroom because the school and the classroom were not providing her with anything that either made, made, gave her meaning or, or a scope of action. But because she received this, this uh, support from home, she could find meaning and, and, and I would say healing from the fact that, that she realized that humanity was facing certain great existential dangers that she wanted to address. Now, I'm not saying that the way she addressed them were perfect, but, but anyway, there, there she had a sort of a cause to dedicate herself to, which was beyond her own personal well-being. And, and and so it's very interesting that a girl with mental difficulties could go this way and and a, and a young man that had everything going for him and had uh, had no psychological problems but deep existential void in his life could not continue life and i think this should somehow give us some hints as to what we need to do where we need to go I think there's two main questions is that uh, what does really exist? What What is being? And the other one is uh, what kind of relation do humans have to being? And I think that the those stories you're telling, I think that they both... Um, they both explain they have they, because they have they have a different kind of understanding of being i would say uh, and also the relationship towards being turns out to because they, the way they are acting uh, both to both uh, Geta and avici yeah it has something to do with how they understand their relationship to being mm -hmm. sounds very much like like an example of you know whether we see ourselves as separate separate beings separate individuals or whether we see ourselves fundamentally as um as part of a of an, of an organic whole and if it's if it's so easy to state in words and if it seems so obvious 
why is it so hard to include that in, in our educational curricula? Why is it so hard? Why is there such inertia, this, this idea of an exaltation of, of the individual at the expense of all else, when it so manifestly does not lead to happiness? And there's so many examples of that. I think what, what, one of the, one of the reasons is uh, is this huge discussion has been on uh, in the religious study if that you should not preach, you should not try to to make any influence on the pupils, in, uh, and that's very strange, you know, because if if we say that okay, uh, discussions on what is actually has something to do with. A preaching or how to we actually are being in the world then of course uh, natural science do preach or social science do preach let's say they, they, they talk about democracy as something that is something we we all want to be part of the question is why is it so difficult if we preach around religious questions why is that so much more difficult to do than natural science or social science or, yeah? I, I, I don't know if this is an explanation, but I think this is anyway a way that this could be analyzed because I think that in relationship to any phenomenon, you can basically have three responses. The first one is adaptive. It means that you accept it as it is. And, and traditionally we have had an adaptive response towards religious studies, you know, there was a, a state religion and then children were sort of brought up to be followers of that. Then the other react, uh, the, the other kind of response is to be reactive. And I think this is what we are witnessing now, that there's a reaction against that adaptive mode. And, and we're saying, no, I mean, that's brainwashing or that's hegemony and, and we have to somehow create free-thinking individuals and definitely not let religion be the, the sort of a force that controls people's lives. And because it is only reactive, the only thing it does, it tries to negate something rather than... Um, and I think the third option is for a response to be transformative. And I think this is the response that we need. It's not, and I think this is what essentially Stephen is saying that, you know, we cannot like have an approach to religion and spirituality as it was before. So we cannot be adaptive, but just to react against that and try to get rid of it or, or replace it with something that doesn't at all re resemble that, just get away from it. That's not the solution either. We need to find that transformative option. Mm. And what, what would be that? transformative option that would that would make it possible for for a spiritual discourse to be meaningful from a rational perspective and in today's world i think that's that's what we need in schools i think you you answer your own question by dialectical yeah the discourse uh, i think the, the this this uh, adaptation or negation or transformation, I think that's very dialectical. Mm. And and I think the, the, the only way human actually can can be dialectical is by by discussion. 
Mm. And, and then I mean not only discussion but dialogues. Dialogues where we we behave or we are we act like we are um, giving uh, the argument and the, the logical thoughts their possibility of of blooming. Yeah, you mentioned tra transformation. I think one of the transformational things that has to happen is lies in our in our conception of what religion is. You know, if we continue to think of religion essentially in dogmatic terms as a fixed set of doctrines that's delivered, you know, from on high at periodic intervals, that leads to a certain, I think, sclerotic conception of uh, of what religion is. Whereas a, a more transformative approach would open the boundaries um, and see religion more as a, that principal force impelling the development of human consciousness that sees you know religious that sees religious perspectives as spilling over into areas of dialogue that we might have considered secular i mean comrade when you mentioned a few minutes ago the resistance you know to teaching you know religion in schools you know the people would say well we can't do that because this is a secular society it made me think of the opening words of uh, of one of our founding documents in the in the united states uh, that uh, that school children all know and and can recite almost as scripture. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that's so foundational to what we think of as a basically secular government. This is a religious statement, though. This has this is freighted throughout with theological assumptions about the nature of being, about what we are, where we came from. You know, the whole idea that we have in inalienable rights is not is not a, an inevitable conclusion of a, of say a materialistic frame of reference. It it comes from somewhere else, and yet we're not used to thinking about our about our, our ourselves as our, our secular government as being uh, founded in some deeply religious ideas. So that's just one way in which I think we can open the dialogue between between science and religion, open, open doors to um, the delivering of narratives in, in classrooms, like this narrative here, you know, in, in our Declaration of, of Independence, um, which are not dog, are non-dogmatic, are not favoring one religious organization over another, but which present a vision of being, a vision of human life in the face of being, which is, um, which offers a hope and which gives a, it gives a, a reason for for human solidarity. Yeah, actually, this is I, I think this is very interesting because because uh, I think there's a lot of how to say spirituality disguised in our materialistic world um, because essentially if you if you purely logically uh, carry on from the argument that there is no higher force there's no purpose that this existence is just some sort of a strange uh, uh, accident that happened then I don't think there is any logical reason other than very very how uh, would say utilitarian one for having any sort of morality. 
I mean, I would, the only reason in such a universe that I would like to be at all moral is because that would protect my uh, own well-being. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, if I had the smallest chance of doing anything that is considered immoral to benefit myself, I would do it because mm -hmm. why not? You know, like mm -hmm. there is no right and wrong. There is no high purpose. And yet mm -hmm. there are very few people who call themselves materialists that would subscribe to such a, uh, you know, <laughs> nihilistic view of morality. And this is why, as you said, you know, uh, we, we have even, you know, the universal declaration of human rights and so forth. And, and, and there seems to be, so, so I think that, that we are sort of carrying on uh, that, um, that um, uh, whole way of thinking that, that word religions throughout history have given us, but it's like we have, we have tried, and I think the problem here is that, that, and this is something that Alexander Sorchenitsyn, I remember back in the 80s, he, he referred to in his talk at Princeton University, that, that we have, we are trying to maintain that morality, mainly through legislation, but having sort of cut its connection to something mm -hmm. higher and it doesn't work mm -hmm. but it shows that that we still have it i mean it hasn't disappeared and in fact if it did disappear this would be a totally horrible world i mean because then you know any you know and anybody who did anything that we now consider wrong could not be really accused for anything because you know like mm -hmm. who says it's wrong i i often i, I wonder if if was it was the moral judgment better, for instance, when they had a higher God? Or, or was it not? Or, or are human nowadays more or less uh, moral than, than before? I think there, there are... Uh, of course, it's very difficult if, if we understand uh, our moral being only as someone who's doing it because of legislation or don't want to go to prison or something like that. <laughs> then I, I follow Kant in many ways, uh, believing that there are a priori, some, something before, yeah, before the society that actually are moral in human beings. And then we, of course, we 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 start to discuss uh, what is this? What, it, for instance, if if we discuss with a, with um, someone who's understanding our brain, uh, what what part of the brain is actually our moral consciousness? There, there are those who would argue that the 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 continuing sort of persistence of these moral ideas being honest in your business relationships and so forth is just a kind of an, a, a long drawn out after effect of uh, that has its origin in religious belief, but the foundations for that religious belief having been torn asunder and pulled out from under us, we're still living in, as though, as though we've walked in from the cold into a warm room in which there's this useless hunk of metal in the in the corner of the room. And we don't realize that that useless hunk of metal was the furnace, which only recently has has broken down. But the room is still somewhat warm because, you know, until recently, the furnace was keeping the room warm. Uh, and we're sitting in the room and the temperature is dropping 
and we're feeling the temperature dropping and we can't figure out why because all we'd see is this useless hunk of metal that we never really understood what its purpose was. Let's just throw it out. Um, and I think that's how a lot of people think of religion is this useless heap of, of dogmas, which, you know, longs, which, you know, can't, can't figure out why, why they could have ever been uh, of help to us, but we are, you know, still living in its, in its influence uh, because the, because the influence of those, of those moral precepts, uh, you know, last, last for centuries, they become part of our, our culture. I don't know if I believe that though. I mean, I, I don't know if I would, if, if I believe that that's the case or if there is some more innate moral sense uh, within, within humans that would be there with or without a religious dogma to reinforce it. Do we need God to tell us that it's bad to kill or that it's bad to steal? Can we work that out for ourselves? Kant would say we can work some of those moral moral foundations out for ourselves if we just apply the logical principle that um, that one should act in a way such that uh, such that if everyone else acted the same way that you would be okay with that. Um, and, and that's a a logical foundation for a certain kind of morality that doesn't require a um, a divine source. But even that, you know, begs a question of well, what what's the difference between a divine source, the, the divine source and the human source? I mean, are we drawing an artificial distinction when we talk about right and wrong as defined by by some divine code and right and wrong as as we believe we have, have derived from more fundamental principles. You know, is religion a top-down or a bottom-up phenomenon? That's, I think, a point of, of, of debate and, and conversation. Although traditionally we may have thought of religion as a top-down phenomenon and we're just completely out in the cold without being told what to do and how to do it. Um, conversely, and this is, I think, part of this idea of transforming the dialogue about religion, if we think about religion in more organic, bottom-up terms, um, as something which proceeds from an inward sense of interconnectedness, rather than something which is imposed upon us from the outside, then I think in that direction lies a different kind of dialogue about religion, about the relationship between religion and state, about what do we mean when we talk about teaching morals in classrooms and so forth. May, may I just uh, build on one of the words that you used uh, a minute ago, um, and you, you refer to the word principle. I mean, because I think the way that we we teach science, uh, I mean, it's not so much like what is the, as it were, what is the ultimate cause or or starting point of scientific principles but we what but but what we do is that we we acknowledge that there are certain principles according to which nature works and um so like uh, if you if you step off a balcony you're not going to go upwards you're going to go downwards and you know whatever almost like whatever that is due to it's very good to know because then you can regulate your life so as not to hurt yourself and i wonder whether we could also approach what we call religion or spirituality in terms of recognizing that there are also spiritual principles. There are principles 
governing our inner and our social lives that if we follow them, good things will happen. If we oppose them, bad things will happen. So let's say injustice is a disequilibrium state that will always, at least with time, is unsustainable. It will lead to the breakdown of a thing. Whereas, as you were saying, unity, whether it's unity within the person, unity within the family, with unity within the nation, unity in the world, is always going to have maximally beneficial outcomes. Mm. And, and I think this could be maybe one. And, and I think, actually, I was trying to purposefully throw some, you know, like, um, or build the bridges between natural laws and spiritual laws, because I think I think there is this principle of homology that the ancient Greeks believed in, where where spiritual laws, in many ways, are natural laws on a sort of higher level and have very similar kind of a structure. And if if we if we uh, approach spirituality and morality from that point of view, then I think it would be more universal and it would and that we could much more easily see the um the connection between the material and the spiritual i mean i think athens and jerusalem would somehow come closer to each other i i agree and i i think also that we we could start with the with the questions i mean what, what kind of questions do we do we ask when we when we give an answer from natural science and and what kind of questions doesn't natural science give any kind of answer to and those questions we should also bring in and try to bring give principles on so so i think that if if we if we try to but of course that there are there's probably a lot of questions that's that we, we we try to give different kind of answers from different kind of view, but but also that there are there are questions that we can't answer by natural science. Mm. One one supposed difference between the kinds of questions that are that are asked um, is is um, highlighted by two quotations: one from Stephen Hawking and one from Richard Feynman. Stephen Hawking said there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority, and science, which is based on observation and reason. And by Richard Feynman, I would rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And I think both of those of those quotations offer us a contrast between two very different ways of thinking and navigating the world, which I think un unfairly, one of them is applied to religion in general, and the other is applied to the scientific mindset. And I don't have as much problem with their characterization of the scientific mindset. I agree with it, actually. But I disagree with their characterization that religion is necessarily based on authority or on answers that can't be questioned. And I think one of the transformations in the dialogue that have to take place, if we're going to have a useful dialogue and uh, about science and religion and a way forward, 
is a way of thinking about religion that doesn't simply identify it with a dictatorial authority of a revealed truth, of answers that can't be questioned. We have to transform our concept of religion in, in a way that it becomes a living, active investigation of reality, something that is tested in experience, just like science is, in its own way, obviously not with quantitative instruments as, as with science, but tested in its application in our lives and in the lives of, of, of society as, as a way to, to determine its truth. I think applying the scientific mindset to the reality of religion is, is one of the ways forward. But for that to happen requires a, a pretty fundamental shift of mindset, because I think for a lot of people, religion very much is about authority. It very much is about dogma and about answers that can't be questioned. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the big problem with uh, religious studies in education, in the education system nowadays, the way that too many answers that too many okay this is the answer in in buddhism this is the answers in in hinduism or yeah and and then and that's what they what they learn they they just learn the students just learn yeah these dogmas instead of starting with the questions and then Mm -hmm. trying to understand by dialogue but in in the in the in the real dialogue in the classroom what kind of answers that's that are possible on the on these questions and that would i think that would that would be bring in uh, uh well-being that would bring in uh, our understanding of being and of our relation to being that could help us actually being in a world in a good way manner that's also the that's, that's the that's the main idea about moral Mo- moral is about acting acting in the world mm. uh, and not 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 like altruism or or anything like that it's just it is a question of of being in a world in a good way and of course because we are part of a society and we are part <laughs> we have other human or cats or whatever animal nature trees we have around us we we we, we have to act in in a good manner with with us, our surroundings. And that may be something that we could next time go deeper into. But before we do that, I would like to take a step back in relation to something that you said, uh, Knutova, because I think that a, a limiting factor, both for scientific and religious education, is that traditionally, at least in schools, they both are taught for reasons of gaining control over the world that surrounds us so so the important thing in schools is to learn the right answers whereas um one of the things that einstein says about science and about knowledge which i think is very very important is that actually the the greatest aspect of knowledge and, and where science and religion both can 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 be instrumental is the sense of awe and recognition of mystery. It's not being in control of everything, but it is realizing that there is something wonderful, majestic, mysterious that we are part of. 
And I think I think that um, this is something that we should do much more of in school. I don't think kids usually come from school having experienced something like that because school is all about targeted knowledge that you have to master. And, uh, and so somehow we, I, I, you know, I think that, that that sense of mystery and awe and recognizing how small you are in a wonderful, complex, beautiful universe actually is uh, something that gives you a sense of purpose and, and meaning in itself. And, and it's, it's a sad fact that we're depriving people of that. And I think in today's world, because our science has developed so much more, we can really give this experience in a much deeper and meaningful way than in the past where people basically were, were just afraid of you know, the, that unknown universe that was a threat to them. But now we can, we can approach it in a more, I think, mature way, just enjoying its it's beauty and mystery. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a good way of ending this conversation today. I, I think also, yeah, this mystery is also connected to to logos. Logos are something mysterious and and uh, listening to to actually to go out and not trying to get control over the world or control the world, but to actually listen and and have resonance with the world. Mm. I think that's, and I, I think that uh, school could, uh, and yeah, different subjects in school could have done a lot in this, in, the, in this, that direction to bring more listening and more resonance into the, mm. into the, the classroom and less control. So maybe we could st stop there for this time and uh, hopefully the listeners have had a great as a great time as we have. So um, we say bye-bye for this time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps and Knut Ovese. Nora Julist Technical Support. Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.